In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today, actually, <coughs> we will finish our reflections on Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter and the longest psalm in the scripture. It's composed of 22 sections. Each section is actually arranged to the Hebrew alphabet. Each section has eight verses. The first letter of each verse starts with the letter of the section. For example, if section one is A, section two B, section three is C, and so on, of course, according to the Hebrew alphabet. So each verse in section one, the eight verses start with A. Second section, each verse starts with B. Third section, each verse starts with C. Of course, the Hebrew alphabet. Today we'll start the last two sections, which actually is section 21 and 22. The 21 or 21st letter in Hebrew alphabet is Sheen. And the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Tau. From verse 161 to 168, that is Sheen, so each verse starts with the letter Sheen. And from 169 to 176, each letter starts with the letter Tau. Also, very important observation, each verse has a reference to the Word of God, almost each verse. For example, in 161, your word. In 162, your word again. In 163, your law. In 164, your judgment. 165, your law. 166, your commandments. 167, your testimonies. 168, your precepts and your testimonies. Almost in each single verse, there is a reference to the Word of God. In, in section 20, the previous section, there was a remarkable number of pleas and requests to God. But this part of the psalm contained no petitions, especially in section 21, there is no petition. But the psalmist in this section declared his steadfast faithfulness to God. How he is faithful to God and to the word of God, even in the time of hardship and affliction and persecution. The psalmist's heart is filled with awe, joy, love, gratitude for the word of God. Therefore, he has been diligent in, the, in observing the word of God. This is not like the boasting of the Pharisee when he bragged before God, about how he is keeping the law of God. But here David is like making an honest profession of a good conscience that he is faithful to the word of God. Section 22, which actually is the last section from verse 169 to 176, again, each verse begins with the letter Tau. And in the last section of the psalm, the psalmist closes with a humble prayer. Actually, in this humble prayer, he is asking God to give him understanding according to his word. He knows the word of God, and he knows the promises in the word of God. Now he wants to understand how God is honoring those promises, how God will be fulfilling these promises. So he's praying according to the will of God that's revealed in the word of God, and asking God actually to listen to his prayer and to move his life according to the will of God and the word of God. In this final part, the psalmist takes his thoughts to a higher level, to a greater depth, to a more powerful figure's eagerness and devotion, as we will see. The theme of section 21 
letter Shin, in awe of God's word, holy awe of God's word. The last section, the theme sought by God and his word. So let's start from verse 61. Princes persecute me without a cause. And this actually can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was persecuted and crucified without a cause. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. Although I am persecuted, but my heart stands in awe of your word. Who are the princes here? His enemies, because they were men of authority and position. Back in verse 23, these princes were joined in conspiracy against David, but here they are actively pursuing him. So in verse 23, he is speaking about how they conspire, but now they are pursuing him, chasing him. And their intention that was mentioned in verse 23 is acted out now in verse 161. Those who believe that David was the author of this psalm know that David was indeed persecuted by many princes without a cause. For example, these princes can be the princes of Philistines at the court of Achish, when the king of, of Palestine. When actually David went to King Achish and told him, I will go in war with you against Israel. And then the princes went to Achish and told him, do you believe that David will be faithful and loyal to you? David who killed Goliath, he will fight with the Philistines against Israel and they persecuted him. Or could be the princes of Israel who joined in conspiracy with Absalom his son, like Achitophel. Or the princes around King Saul, who suggested to King Saul that David had an evil plan against King Saul, and they pursued him from place to place on the mountains to kill David. The obvious question should be why they are persecuting him. And the answer is without a cause. This again happened exactly with the Lord Jesus Christ. David had neither openly or secretly opposed their power, the power of Absalom, even Absalom his son, or the power of King Saul or Achish, and therefore this made their oppression more inexecutable. But David, how he reacted to this persecution? And instead of being consumed by his innocent persecution and develop the victim mentality, instead of being trembling in fear from these princes who are targeting him and want to kill him, the psalmist actually focused his eye on the word of God. And his concern was exclusively how to please God. How not to let this persecution take his heart away from God? No, rather in the time of difficulty, he's still faithful to God and still pleasing God. This helped David not to have any fear of men, but now he is consumed by a real, a holy fear of the Almighty. He did not fear men, he did not fear Absalom, he did not fear Achitophel, he did not fear King Saul, he did not fear Achish. He knew that God in control. But now his concern about to drift away and not to please God. So these difficult trials, even persecution by those in authority, would not make the psalmist lose his awe of the word of God. As he said, Yes, princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. He did not have a conditional appreciation for the word of God. If God fulfill his promise and deliver me, I will appreciate him. If not, then I will leave God and stay away from God. No, 
He loved the word of God and he was faithful to God in good times as well as in bad times. He might have been overcome by awe of princes when, if his mind is not focused on God. When our mind is not focused on God, we will fear men. But why David was not overcome by the awe of princes? Because there is a greater fear, fear from the word of God, holy fear, drove the lesser fear. What is the lesser fear? Fear of men. So when we live in the fear of God, we will not be afraid of men. His loyalty to the law of God was not shaken even by the unjustified hostility of the civil authority. Rather, he feared to offend God and to disobey him. Nothing discouraged David from manifesting his obedience to the law of God even during the difficult time. St. Augustine says, here David in this verse representing the church. We know what persecutions the body of Christ, that is the Holy Church, suffered from the kings and princes of the earth. Let us therefore here also recognize the word of the church. For how had the Christian injured the kingdom of the earth? We never heard about faithful Christian opposed or get into war with the princes of the earth. Did their king, their king here Christ, the king of the believers, forbid his soldiers, like the disciples and the believers, to pay and to render due service to the king of the earth? Did Christ told us one time, if you are persecuted by the kings of the earth, don't pay taxes, don't pay customs? No. Says he not, didn't he say to the Jews, who were striving to calumniate him, render unto Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and unto God the thing that are God's? Did he, Jesus Christ himself, not even in his own person, pay tribute from the mouth of Ephesh? So, St. Augustine is saying, although we are persecuted by the kings of the earth, but our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, instructed us all the time to be faithful citizens, to pay taxes. Even Jesus himself paid the taxes, although he was persecuted by the princes of the earth. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And according to the Septuagint and also the Arabic, as the one who finds great spoil, not just kins, ghanima. I will explain what's the difference between a spoil and treasure. I rejoice at your word. The psalmist took a pleasure in reading the word of God, in hearing the word of God, in meditating on the word of God. He views the precepts of the law as real treasure. That's why he said, I rejoice as if one found real treasure. But the original word, as I told you, is a spoil, a spoil that is collected from battle. And the degree of that pleasure is one that finds great spoil. So why I told you spoil is different from treasure? Because the spoil implies what? There is victory. There is a warfare. There is a battle. And in this battle, two things happened. Victory and also collection of the spoil. So it's not just a, a person who found a treasure. He likens the promise of God, the word of God, is like great spoil. And understanding this comparison is very important. Why he said the word of God is like a spoil. Because at that time, at the time of David, the warrior of that time was rarely compensated for his service. There was no real salary for them. But their payment would be contingent upon victory and would come in the form of a spoil taken from the enemy. So if they are defeated, they will get nothing. But if overcome the enemy, 
So their payment is the spoil they collect from the enemy. So a warrior would rejoice not only because he defeated the enemy, but also rejoice because of the reward that comes from that victory, from the spoil he collects from this victory. So the psalmist recognizes that there are rich reward in the promise of God that he can benefit from. When we fight against Satan, according to the word of God, and when we defeat Satan, according to the word of God, not only we rejoice because of the victory, but there is also a spoil, a reward that we will collect. Scholar Origin explained what this is spoil. He said, in every spiritual battle against the devil, the believer comes out a conqueror, that's the victory, and a bearer of multitude of spoils. What are these spoils? New depth in his fellowship with God. Greater enjoyment of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life. Then he said in verse 163, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. The law of God is the truth. So what is opposite against the word of God is falsehood, is lying. Anything against the word of God is falsehood, is lying. That's why he's making comparison. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law, which is the truth. One who truly loves the pure truth, and he will naturally hate lies. The psalmist not only reject falsehood, but find it vile, wicked, shameful, and disgraceful. That's why he is not only rejecting falsehood, but he hates lying. He abhors lying. But on the other hand, he loves the law of God. So the psalmist is so committed to the word of God, which is the truth, that he hates anything that contradicts the word of God, that undermines the word of God, that devalues the word of God. Because he knows that anything against the word of God is falsehood. And the sin of lying belongs to Satan, who is the father of all liars. As we read in John chapter 8, verse 44, You are the Lord Jesus Christ who is saying to the Jews, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was the devil, a murderer from the beginning, because he tempted Cain to kill his brother Abel, and does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him, in Satan. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he, Satan, is a liar and the father of it, father of lies. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgment. The goodness and the glory of God's word, and he called here the God with righteous judgment. Judgment that is right. Judgment that are true. Prompted the psalmist to praise. Praise not only one time, but seven times. The praise here was constant and continual seven times a day. And according to St. Augustine, number seven generally refers to absolute perfection. So seven times a day I praise you means I shall never stop praising you. Seven times means all the time, all day, I will praise you. How often David praised God? Seven times a day. That's not only one time, but every day. He praised God seven times every day. And some affirm that David here is to be understood literally. He prayed seven times every day. That's why in the Agbaya we have seven prayers. And this was based on the teaching of St. Athanasius, who said, let us then watch the day and the night like David, who give thanks for the sake of God's righteous judgment seven times a day, as well as at midnight. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble.
I want you to think about how he was persecuted. But in the middle of the persecution, he had peace and joy. So even the persecution by the princes did not take the peace and the joy away from his heart. Because God promised us to grant us his peace even during the hard time and the difficult time. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. The greatest and truest praise that can be bestowed on anyone is to say they love God's law. Meaning to love God's law, meaning they love God who gives the law, the giver of the law. And if they love God and love everything belong to God, that's why as if they have no enemy. Because God will fight all the enemies on their behalf. That's why they are at peace at all times. A sense of perfect peace and rest belongs to those who love and keep the law of God. And we saw in our time when many Christian, faithful Christian and clergy and bishops were in prison in the 80s and when Pope Shenouda was under house arrest. All those who met them during this time, they did not lose their peace. Even those who were in prison, they did not lose their peace. Because this peace comes from within, as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. By the same process of reasoning, because God is with them, nothing causes them to stumble. Those who love God will not stumble, because he who loves the law of God cannot break the law of God. If you love the word of God, you cannot break the word of God. They would not fall into sin. Nothing causes them to stumble, even persecution. For he who enjoys the true peace of God, which springs from his love for his holy name, the name of God, and strive to obey his commandment, nothing whatsoever will cause him to stumble. But he will say, like St. Paul, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. That's why they will not stumble. I know even if I'm persecuted by the princes, this will turn out for good for those who love God. No tribulation, no distress, no oppression that may dwell upon them will cause them to stumble because they trust in the righteous judgment of God and in his exalted care. Their peace comes from their depth, from within, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and from their fellowship with God, not from circumstances. Verse 166, Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. I hope for your salvation, either temporal salvation from the enemies, deliverance from the enemies, from affliction, which God actually promised. And that's why David is hoping for this temporal <coughs> salvation. Or I hope for your salvation, for eternal salvation, for spiritual salvation. And here the psalmist displays the kind of active faith and trust that saves. He is hoping, but he is doing. I hope in your salvation, but I do your commandment. Because faith without work is dead. He had faith in God for salvation. He trusted that God will save him. But this faith also is saying, I do your commandment. This is the kind of living faith that St. James in his letter strongly expressed when he said, faith without works is dead. So the idea of hope here is not just wishful thinking. I wish that you will save me. No, but... It is actual trust because my faith is a living faith. My faith is not without works, but my faith is expressed that I do your commandment. The Bible uses several different terms to communicate this idea that faith without works is dead. All of them speak of a firm and fixed expectation and anticipation of what 
will most certainly happen. Salvation. Yes, we have this firm and fixed expectation. But the hope for God's salvation is to be certain of its coming and assume its arrival when we do his commandment. The people of God cannot hope for God's salvation unless they set themselves to do his commandment. As we read in Revelation 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandment, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 167. My soul, so I'm not keeping your commandment just externally, outwardly, but my soul from within keeps your testimony, and I love them exceedingly. So the psalmist kept the word of God not only with his outward action, but also with his soul. His love to the word of God was deeply rooted, not just superficial, not just external. The psalmist states that his soul, the entireness of his being, obeyed the testimony of God. Why does he do this? Why? Because he loves the word of God exceedingly. Because he is fully committed, he loves them all exceedingly. God also knows this. God observes his ways and he knows how much he loves the word of God internally and externally. That's why in verse 168 he said, I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. All my ways are before you. This reminds me with Peter when he said to the Lord, you know, Lord, that I love you. You know, David here say, all my ways are before you. You know that I love your, your word internally from my soul and externally when I obey your precept and your testimonies. So for the psalmist, the knowledge that all his ways are before God also prompted obedience. God sees me and I cannot run away from him. He knew that God who gave the word also observed his life. With the courage of a good conscience, he appeals to God omniscience in proof of the sincerity of his purpose because God knows all his ways. God, you know everything. You know how faithful I am in keeping your commandment. Both God's precepts and testimonies are carefully obeyed by David. Why? Because everything that he says, he thinks, he does, all of his ways occur in the very presence of God Almighty. This is in contrast to many people who live as if God does not observe them, as if God doesn't see them. That's why they live in ways of a man, not ways of God. Section uh, 22, the last section, which actually composed according to the last letter of Hebrew alphabet, Tau. It starts by, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. So he's here asking two things. Number one, that his cry, his supplication, come before God, in the presence of God. And number two, that God may enlighten him and give him understanding according to the word of God. So the psalmist has written about the word of God, and he used many synonymous. For example, he used the word law, testimony, way, statutes, commandments, precept, ordinances, sayings. All these different words to portray different aspects of the word of God. Now in the last part of the psalm, he closes with a humble prayer. And the entire section 22 is a conversation between the psalmist and his God. The cry of the psalmist is an expression of a prayer, a plea to gain understanding according to the word. So he told him, enlighten my mind to understand according to your testimony. And when he said, let my cry, the word cry indicates heavy burden or deep sorrow. So his petition here is, 
that his prayer might be heard, might come in the presence of God. It might come into the very presence of God, that there might be no obstruction to its reaching where God was. He is praying that his prayer will not be obstructed by his unworthiness from his past sin because of his ignorance. So nothing from these things can prevent his prayer from coming or entering into the presence of God. He wanted his thoughts and his mind to be transformed according to the word of God. Give me understanding according to the word of God. By the way, he made this request several times, like in verse 27, 34, 73, 125, 144. So it is a continuous plea for God not just to give him the word, but to enable him and to make him understand the word and to enable him to do the word of God. So it is a cry for divine discernment, understanding according to your word, which means to be able to discern things in the light of what God's word has said and to apply them. He repeated the same meaning in verse 170 when he said, Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word, according to the promises in your word. This is another reference to prayer by the psalmist. This time a prayer for deliverance. In the first verse, he said, give me understanding according to your word. Now he is saying, deliver me according to your word. So he is asking for deliverance. But he wanted only as it was consistent with God's revealed word and will. If this is your will, deliver me. If this is according to your promises, deliver me. Otherwise, I'm not asking for this deliverance. So every petition is urged upon the assurance of a promise. You promised me in your word that when we ask you, you will deliver us. I'm here asking you, deliver me according to your word. His desire is for God to hear and grant his petition, to think and to live in perfect harmony with God's revealed will and word. So when he told them, give me understanding, it's about his thinking. And when he asked him to deliver, it's about how he lives. So he wants how to think and how to live to be in harmony with the word of God and the will of God. Verse 171, My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Utter praise means like water flowing from a fountain. That is the original word means this. So praise will flow from my mouth all the time. The psalmist desire for praise to pour forth from his lips. The psalmist feels that his prayer for understanding in verse 169 is answered or just about to be answered. And that's why it is appropriate for him to utter praise. Why he is uttering praise here in verse 171? Because he trusted that God will answer his prayer for understanding and for deliverance. That's why he is praising God. He now promises to return thanks on getting the grace he so often asked. I prayed for grace. You granted me the grace. Now I am offering you praise. When God's grace shall so enlighten and assist him to keep his commandment, then in the fullness of his inward joy and in the acknowledgement of so great a favor, he said, my lips shall utter praise and thanksgiving. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you give me understanding and you delivered me. I am joyful. My heart is full of joy. That's why out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why my mouth, actually, and my lips utter praise and thanksgiving to you. When God opens the understanding and opens the heart, he also opens the lips. 
so the mouth may utter praise. The psalmist lips did not praise God by nature. He had to be taught God's truth and taught from God himself. He is saying here, because I learned your truth, because you teach me your statutes, that's why my lips utter praise. If I did not learn your statutes, my mouth would be silent. My mouth will not be able to praise you. So he is saying here, this praise is not just a natural fruit of the lips, but this praise comes because he learned the truth of God and he was learned from God himself. You teach me your statutes. Those who are taught of God have a great deal of reason to be thankful. And the psalmist wanted his lips and his tongue both to praise God and to speak of his word. And this actually the root of Kiyak melody in which we say, my heart and my tongue praise the Trinity. As we read in 172, my tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. My tongue shall speak, in Arabic yughanni, shall sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. So the psalmist moves from a spontaneous reaction of praise to a premeditated determination to praise. For example, if somebody does a favor to you, your spontaneous reaction to say thank you. And then you start maybe to meditate on buying a gift for him. So here we can see the Psalms move from just a spontaneous reaction of praise now to a premeditated determination to praise. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. He says that he will not only praise God, but that he will teach mankind and prove to them how full of justice are the commandments of God. Speak of your word means also I will teach others your word and teach them how the commandments of God are righteous. My tongue shall speak of your word. He will announce God's precept to men, and he will teach them that all the commands of God are righteous. He wishes for his tongue to be utilized in singing God's promise and declare it to the people. God's commandments are all based on justice, righteous, and that is therefore they should be observed by all. Every single person should observe the commandments of God because they are righteous, they are true. He was determined that others would hear David praising God and also teaching the word of God. And this should not be about David, but about all of us. Others should hear us praise God and teach them the truthfulness of the word of God. Knowing the purity of God's word made the psalmist wanted to speak to others about it. He was confident in his conviction, his conviction to teach the word of God. So the topic of his praise would always be God's word and God's commandment and proclaiming the justice and the righteousness and the mercifulness of God to others. St. Augustine says, when David says, he will declare these things, he becomes a minister of the word, a servant of the word. For though God teach within, within our heart, nevertheless, faith comes from hearing, as we read in Romans. And how do they hear without a preacher? For because God gives the increase, we have no excuse not to plant or water. So St. Augustine says, yes. He said, you taught me. God teaches us from within. But also St. Paul said, faith comes from hearing. So we need to speak the word of God. We need to teach others the word of God. Yes, God will give the increase, but we need to plant and to water 
but God will give the increase. Verse 173, let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. So the psalmist now expresses his desire for God to act. Help me. The Bible often uses the imagery of the hand or the arm of God to indicate power, might, and ability. This desire is for God's hand, his ability, his power, his might, to be ready in position for the expressed purpose of helping the psalmist. As if he's saying, let your power help me. I need your help in preaching your word. He pleads three reasons for an answer of his prayer. What are the three reasons? He's telling God, please answer my prayer. And here are my reasons why he should answer my prayer. Number one, in verse 173, I have chosen your precepts. David, by his own will, by his own freedom, deliberately determined to obey God's precept. But David felt he cannot obey the precepts of God without the help of God. Now he is boldly asking for God's help because he has had chosen to love and keep the word of God. So the psalmist does not desire God's help on the basis of his personal superiority on others. I'm not asking you to help me because I'm better than others. But on the basis that he already belongs to God, I chose to love your word. I chose to keep your precept. So if I choose to to be in your camp, help me and support me. He, David, the child of God, prays to God for understanding and deliverance that's perfectly in line with God's own character and God's word and God's will. So here, can you see his motivation is purely driven by a person of God, by the nature of the word of God by his own position as belonging to God. David perceived himself, he is God's position. Because I am your position, that's why help me. In verse 174, he gives another reason. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Because your law is my delight. That's why I long for your salvation, O Lord. Verse 174, he pleads the second reason why God should answer his prayer, because he delights in the law of God. He gives a reason for asking so pressingly for salvation. Why am I asking you, God, to save me and to deliver me? Because he wishes for it above and beyond anything he ever desired. My delight, my joy, my pleasure. The only thing actually that makes me happy is your word. As it is really the only object worthy of such desire, it being the only thing will satisfy man's desire. The only thing that gives me pleasure, that only thing that satisfies all my desires, that only thing that's worthy of any desire is your word, O God. And as it will not be sufficient to have a desire for salvation without observing the commandment of God, he therefore adds, and your law my delight. Always, always, he think of the law of God and exercise them and keeping them. So he is saying, save me, O Lord, because I delight in your word. Not only he delight in the word of God, but his delight. There is a difference between I delight in your word or my delight is your word. So my delight means my greatest delight. There is no other pleasure except in your word. To delight in something assumes joy, value, adherence, appreciation, and commitment. So he says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. It is the only thing that delights me. Verse 175. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you, and let 
your judgment help me. In verse 175, let my soul live. The psalmist desires the continuance of his natural life. Why? Not for his own personal advantage, not for the sake of his family, not with any worldly and selfish views, but for the glory of God, for the sake of praising him. I'm asking you to let my soul live in order to praise you and let your judgment help me. So the object of his life here on earth, for which he prays so often, that God may give him prolonged life to revive him, to free him from persecution and trial, the object of all of this, that he may praise God. His devotion has been no unwilling, reluctant service, but his constant delight. This is actually the third reason to answer his prayer. He said, let your judgment help me. It shall praise you and let your judgment help me. So he is saying, when I serve you, it is not I, I force myself or I'm reluctant, but my dedication to you is by my free will and my constant delight is in you. That's why I'm asking you to deliver me. I am totally dependent on you. His love for and dedication for the word of God has made him more spiritually dependent on God. So he is asking God to save him for these three reasons. Because he chose the precepts of God, he is delighted in the word of God, and he is dependent on God. The psalmist needed understanding in verse 169, deliverance in verse 170, ability to worship God rightly in verse 171-172, power to live an upright life in 173-174, and strength to persevere in 175. That's why he said, let your judgment help me. I want to live a righteous life, but I'm dependent on you. I cannot do it by myself. Further and advance him in glorifying God, let your, your judgment be the matter of his praise and let them help to make him fit for that work. He's asking for the judgment of God for two things, that he praise God for his righteous judgment and also the righteous judgment help him in his life here on earth, enlighten his way. As he said, your word is light to my feet. Definitely we are in need of the divine help to keep the truth forever. Many times we are tempted to falter between truth and vanity. Sometimes we like to live for God and to live for the world. As Elijah said to the people, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. He who has the truth would seek God's help to keep his commandment. As long as he keeps God's judgment in his memory in the time of distress, this will protect him not to be lost, not to falter between two ways. That's why in verse 176, he said, I'm asking you to help me because I chose your commandment, because your commandments are my delight, because I'm dependent on you, because if I am lost, it is only you who will bring me back. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandment. Yes, sometimes out of weakness, we are lost or we go astray, but not because we don't like the commandment of God. He said, seek your servant for I do not forget your commandment. So after all his professions of fidelity and constancy, even including an explicit declaration that in spite of intimidation of the princes had not got, gone astray for God's commandment, before in verse 110, he said, 
I did not go astray from your command. Now the psalmist concludes with a confession of weakness and failure. I have gone astray. He acknowledges that he has gone astray like a lost sheep, maybe in his adultery and murder. While at the same moment he pleads at the reason why God should not forsake him, that he has not forgotten God's commandment. So when I committed adultery, when I killed, it's not because of betrayal. No, it's because of my weakness, because I did not forget your commandment. That's why I'm asking, seek your servant. As a good shepherd, God, you are, you are a good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, seek a wandering sheep to bring it back again. Here, seek me and bring me back again. The confession of failure is not inconsistent with the profession of devotion. Yes, I gone astray, but I'm still devoted to you. Yes, I gone astray out of weakness, but I am devoted to you. As in Psalm 19 from verse 12 to 14, which may have been in the psalmist's mind, the thought of the law naturally leads up to the thought of his own weakness and shortcoming and need to be brought back when he wanders. When, who, who among us can say we keep the law of God perfectly? None. That's why when we pray, we confess these two things, our devotion and our weakness. Yes, we are weak, and we, we, we go astray several times, but we don't forget your commandments. That's why bring us back, restore us back to your sheepfold. If he has sinned, it is temporary, and involuntary deviation, it's out of weakness. He will and purpose to serve God his will and purpose to serve God are unchanged. And he praises that God will not abandon him because of my weakness. Verse 170. That's the last verse I have gone astray like a lost sheep. That's how he concluded this psalm. He concluded the psalm with a penitent sense of his own sin and believing dependence on God's grace. So that's how he concluded this beautiful psalm by confessing his weakness, asking God's grace to seek him, and confessing also his devotion to God. Even though he is a man who longs for God's word, loves God's word, obeys God's word, despises any and all who contradict the word of God, but he remains vulnerable. And this encourages all of us. When we fall out of weakness, we should not lose hope as long as we are devoted to God. This is a confession of his constant and continued need for God to guide and protect him. We need you, God, all the time to protect and guide us. Otherwise, we will be lost like the lost sheep. This actually concludes Psalm 119. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.